Hey there, before we get started, just a little disclaimer. The following episode is going to be based on a topic that some people may find a little sensitive. That is black history, faith communities, non-belief, and the way those things all play on each other. With that said, we welcome you. But if you feel like you may want to put this off for another time when you're ready to go down that rabbit hole, let's go. Fake news, anti-CRT, don't say gay, forgive and forget. Today we're taking a moment to see how forgetfulness and short-term collective memories can distort, demean, and discriminate. We'll cover Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln, 45, and even my former pastor. We're looking at remembrance and the subtle manipulative power of misinformation and forgetfulness combined with religion that changes our perceptions for better or for worse. This Education, doubt, critique, science, achievement, engineering, Africa, America, <laughs> and more All right, story time. So a couple years back, I had a part-time job here in Washington, D.C. at a gym. I was a night manager, and it was a pretty cool job. It was some hairy moments, but I got a chance to meet some really cool people and make some friends. And in the fall of 2016, it was a pretty tense time, as you can imagine. And D.C. was really a ghost town, especially after after election day in 2016 it was ominous it rained for about four or five days the streets were quiet nobody was really festive or anything and that was really because of the recent election of the 45th president of the united states so i'm in the gym one night and enter a middle-aged white man who was one of my regulars and he came in and i was standing at the front desk and he noticed my my face and I was probably looking pretty despondent and trying to hide the worry and the pending doom of the Trump presidency and probably not doing a great job of it. But I tried to make some small talk with him. And and, you know, like everybody who came in that day, people really wanted to comment. They wanted to express essentially their condolences and opine and commiserate on the election. He must have seen my face. I guess I wasn't doing a great job of concealing it, but he offered me a don't worry. It's it's not going to be that bad. And I looked at him quizzically like, what? What kind of statement is that? So I just tried to smile it off. You know, I didn't want to get into a political discussion at my job with the patron. But I did think to myself, not going to be that bad not that bad for whom and how after the violence of the MAGA rallies and black men and women being assaulted by P 
people in the crowds bragging about sexual assault of women, blanket stereotyping of immigrants as all rapists and drug users, and the anti-black, pro-Christian, anti-Islamic rhetoric of birtherism and the company of outspoken neo-Nazis, Confederates and Christian theocrats? What allows this guy to be so optimistic? Where is his memory, I wondered. So on this episode, I want to bring up what Dr. Carr from Howard University calls the momentum of memory and the violence of forgetting. forgetting. Eighteen sixty-two, August. A group of black leaders traveled to the White House here in Washington, D.C. to visit Abraham Lincoln, where they were essentially blamed for the Civil War. Lincoln is quoted as saying, but for your presence amongst us, there would be no war. And just a few short years later, there was no more Abraham Lincoln. On April 14, 1876, on the 11th anniversary of President Abraham Lincoln's assassination, Frederick Douglass, the free-thinking abolitionist, attended the unveiling of a ceremony for the Emancipation Memorial, now known as Lincoln Park in Northeast DC. That day, a crowd of 25,000 people assembled, many of them African-American, to hear Douglass speak. And he wasn't pleased with that monument. It was a statue that depicted Lincoln holding a copy of the Emancipation Proclamation while towering over a kneeling black man in broken chains. Incidentally, this statue was financed by donations from mostly formerly enslaved people. Truth compels me to admit, even here in the presence of the monument we have erected to his memory, Douglas said, Abraham Lincoln was not, in the fullest sense of the word, either our man or our model. In his interests, in his associations, in his habits of thought, and in his prejudices, he was a white man. That's what Douglas said at the unveiling of that statue in Lincoln Park. He continues, he was preeminently the white man's president, entirely devoted to the welfare of the white man. He was ready and willing at any time during the first years of his administration to deny, postpone, and sacrifice the rights of humanity in the colored people to promote the welfare of the white people of this country. Douglas wanted Lincoln to emerge from the myth. For him, Lincoln was not an abolitionist. So when we say Lincoln freed the slaves, we are forgetting that. We leave out the agency and the sacrifice of U.S. colored troops and those in the Navy who fought and died for the freedom. I was reminded of Frederick Douglass's dissent about this statue during the summer of 2020, the summer of reckoning. After George Floyd, that was the language we were all using. We were, or so we thought, speaking it into existence. But a reckoning is not an action item on a wish list. By definition, a reckoning refers to the moment when we finally deal with an ugly situation. But it's more than just admitting that there's a problem. In 2020, Lincoln's statue was barricaded and covered with posters and 
surrounded by protesters and people shouting and perhaps trying to bring the statue down. It never came down, but other statues did fall. Angel Mama was retired, books about race went on the bestseller list, and it was a year when corporations and campuses were forced to explain why their records on diversity were at odds with their aspirations. As I record this, the pandemic is winding down, life has returned a little bit to its normal rhythms, and the epiphanies of 2020 and George Floyd have not lasted with the same enthusiasm as they once had. There is some residual momentum from the protests, for sure, but the dust has settled and many have forgotten the pledges of 2020 and the lessons we learned. It seems like we're starting to make, as a society, the same mistakes over again. So what have we learned? And what have we forgotten? Since George Floyd, there has been some movement on police reform, uh, but most of the progress we've seen so far has been at the local level, not all of which has lasted, for example, in Minneapolis and Minnesota. There was a measure in California that was approved to shift traffic enforcement away from the police department. And in some cities like Los Angeles and Baltimore, uh, there's been the successful reallocation of funds from police departments to other parts of the city's budgets to try to address systemic police violence. But the new perspective and reforms during this year of reckoning are something we just can't will into existence. We can't legislate it. We can't even really get people to admit historic, real, unconscious biases in many parts of the country. As James Baldwin put it once, people can cry much easier than they can change. I agree with that. I'm just not sure that I would say that if it weren't for blacks, there wouldn't be a democracy at all. Well... We know how we got democracy. It was through a decades-long Black resistance struggle called the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, that is a Black rights struggle. So uh, you may not like the framing, um, but what I can tell you is the double V for victory campaign was Black people were fighting in an army. They were going overseas. They were dying uh, for uh, to liberate other countries and then coming home and being lynched for wearing their uniform. They were coming home and they could not vote. They were coming home and they could see German prisoners of war going into restaurants and being served where they could not be served. I, I completely is, agree with all but, of that. Right, but you want to treat that as uh, a marginal to the American story. But you can't no, call no, yourself no. the greatest democracy and the greatest democratizing force in the country while violently and brutally suppressing democracy at home. And that's what happened okay, but, for but, millions of but American here's citizens. Where, here's where I take some objection. You're talking about, if you say the country, that we were fighting for democracy overseas and we were not living it, walking the walk, talking the talk at home, I completely agree with you. But you specifically say the greatest generation brutally suppressing, many of this generation brutally suppressing democracy for millions of Americans. To me, and I think Tom Brokaw, when he originally wrote the book, The Greatest Generation, was talking about 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds who came out of the farm fields of the Midwest, who came out of ethnic neighborhoods in Brooklyn and South Philly and, and, and stormed the beaches of Normandy and, and you know, fought to defeat the, the most, the worst regime, I would argue, in, in world history. And to say that they they were 20, 30-year-olds. The country was brutally suppressing blacks, but the greatest generation wasn't. Well, 
They were. <laughs> I no, mean, they weren't. You don't You're telling me that a farm, that a kid you, uh, coming off a farm in Indiana or a kid who came from Brooklyn is was suppressing. So Indiana black had people? the largest population of the Klan in the United States. The Klan was re was I understand, but that wasn't the twenty year old kid who. You don't think twenty year olds were in the Klan? The Klan? The Klan? We'll be right back after this break. what? We've got mail. Or should I say, where we're headed has got mail. In addition to the show website, which is at www.podbean.com, where you can find all relevant information from past episodes, links, resources, and so much more. We've got a new email address where you can reach out and you can send comments, you can send suggestions, and you can also send voice notes with your own personal touch. Send us your feedback, give us a compliment, or give us a suggestion. You can reach us at bndcpodcast at gmail.com. That's bndcpodcast at gmail.com. And once again, our show website is www.podbean.com. Okay, no lie. The Puritan one with Paula. Child, this is fire. I'm telling you, y'all got me fired up. I, I can relate. We have men sold to build churches, women sold to support the gospel, and babes sold to purchase Bibles for the poor heathen. All for the glory of God and the good of souls, the slave auctioner's bell and the church-going bell chime in with each other, and the bitter cries of the heartbroken slave are drowned in the religious shouts of his pious master. Revivals of religion and revivals in the slave trade go hand in hand. Frederick Douglass, 1845. What was Frederick saying by this? What was he trying to do? Trash religion? Criticize Christianity? Being mad at God or giving himself an excuse just to sin? No. Frederick was reminding us to remember, to honor the lived experiences of those who have been lost to the deceptive lure of piety and in-group thinking at the expense of others. He was imploring us to think and not to forget. As a minister of music, I listened to a lot of sermons in my playing days, and I heard a lot of things like discernment, words like obedience and forgiveness and faithfulness. I didn't, however, hear a lot about how we as faith-goers should regard memories or accounts of the past in accurate and objective detail. The cultural meme of never shall forget was used only to recall our wretched selves prior to salvation or how the Lord brought us a mighty long way from, say, the 60s or the courthouses and back country roads and churches to the sprawling opulence of big city buildings and megachurches. That's what I remember. 
I remember lengthy, heartfelt prayer circles where the pastor or the evangelist called out someone from the pews, an at-risk young woman from an obviously broken home, or a teenage boy, obviously, to me, struggling with his homosexuality in a fiercely heteronormative, homophobic environment, or an elderly man preparing for a biopsy that could mean life or death. I recall prayer circles in which I played, where the church went up going forth and beseeching the Lord for things like healing, deliverance, or protection from the worst of the spiritual realm. They told us no weapon formed against me shall prosper. And people cried, they fell out, people shouted. People cheered for victory in advance of their blessing. But they returned to church the next week, and the week after, and the weeks after that. The same, still at risk and abused, still closeted and gay, still struggling, still sick and infirmed, and nobody said anything. It's like people forgot all the prophecies, the prayers, the supplications, and all the desperation and hope from the previous services. There were all kinds of wild spectacles from my vantage point at the organ. To be honest, it was a great place to people watch. But it was difficult whenever I daydreamed about the quality of people's lives once church was over. For example, I recall a young girl who I knew almost for sure was being abused and possibly touched by men in her home and feeling powerless to say or to do anything. I remember a young man who, despite his concealment, eventually grew up to be gay. And despite the prayers of the mothers of the church, or the incendiary sermons from a Reverend Pratt, scapegoating gay people and whipping up a panic about impending marriage equality legislation in New York. I remember one of my choir members who died in her 50s, wonderful lady, died from ALS in less than two years time. On at least two occasions, I remember playing the funeral of an infant. And I remember the mother sitting alone on the front pew in front of the casket. She never spoke. What do we make of our memory? of what God and gods have and have not done? Do we count the wins and ignore the misses? Do we honor and acknowledge them or pretend they just don't exist? Next time on Where We're Headed. I think people don't get that. It's like, whoever you talk to in your closet when you prayed this morning, or whatever, but the church, capital C, institution, is a thing. And those have material effects that you cannot deny. No matter how many rainbows and trees your Jesus hugs, which personally I'm not a... I have interesting views on um, <laughs> on, on Jesus that gets both sides of, of the aisle a little upset. Is that how we do things in America, Afghan? Al-Qaeda? Osama? Huh? Is it? But right here, let's call this the barter system. Hey, I'm a little interested in these two. Oh, oh, is someone hit me and they... I got it. Yeah, he took a lot of your juju. Even even back in the day, like it was like every church didn't agree. Many churches did not agree with Martin Luther King at all. It had nothing to do with the one, nothing to do with what he was doing. 
Um, he was doing too much too far. Some people even found offense to the way he was talking about black people. It was like, well, God loves everybody, right? Yeah, that's and a... They, yeah, they found offense, the fact that he was focusing and talking so much um, about black people. It's like, well, God loves everybody and I can't really, I can't, you know, I don't live a gospel where God only cares about black people type of thing. Looking low, and he's working on my behalf. So all I'm going to do is sit back and praise the goodness of Jesus. I'm going to tell who's doing it. I'm going to testify that the Lord is fixing this for me. We have been fed that that idea that you know church is synonymous with civil rights. That's a part of that cultural myth making that I was during the pandemic. We took that opportunity to really explore through AfricanAncestry.com, which is a Black-owned business that helps you identify who and where you come from, we took that opportunity to look at all sides of our family. It's a homosexuality case. That's where I've come, to ensure that our country prospers, our people are not taking advantage of homosexuality. It does not take root because it hurts many of our young people who get lured into it or forced into it. Yeah. This section of the penal code provides for life sentence. Any person who has colored knowledge of any person against the order of nature is liable to imprisonment for life. 95% of the population does not uh, support homosexuality. Politician now, they are fearing for me. They are going to be killing us and they are sitting us money that they was making and gave it back to the community, we'd be all right. If they take half the buildings that they used to praise God and gave it to motherfuckers who need God, we'd be all right. It's homeless people out here. Why ain't God letting them stay here? Why these niggas got gold ceilings and shit? Why God need gold ceilings to talk to me? The creature, he called us cockroaches. It quickly links with the statement that was said in Rwanda by trying to bring up another genocide of the LGBT communities. Next time on Where We're Headed. Some of y'all paying attention know that as an institution in the 20th century, the Roman Catholic Church has tried to rebrand itself from a, a quintessentially totalitarian institution to a largely benign cultural force. And it would have us forget its record of foisting views onto people against their will. Ask Mother Teresa, Pope Francis, or Eratzinger for more information on that. It isn't specific though to Christianity. Throughout history, Islam has both enslaved and attempted to wipe out other cultures as well. And yet, regardless of the religion, to be converted, you have to destroy your past, destroy your history. You have to stamp on it. You have to say, my ancestral culture does not exist. It doesn't matter. 
To paint or consider religion or divine beliefs as mostly good or mostly true, you have to literally forget that whether in the United States, colonial Africa, neo-colonial Africa, the Caribbean, South America, and of course Europe, too many of humanity's worst atrocities have been committed either in the face of or with the sanction of religious institutions perceived to be wholly virtuous and divinely superior. To not remember this is to add insult to injury to those long victimized by the worst humanity and these institutions have to offer. Even Vladimir Putin recently quoted the Bible, John 15, 13, to justify his unprovoked attack and war crimes in Ukraine. Paraphrasing Jesus himself, he said, there is no greater love than giving one's life for one's friends. What an appropriation. Did you know that in Salem, Massachusetts, during the witch trials of the 16th century, the families and relatives of the falsely imprisoned received reparations on their behalf? In 1702, the court declared that the trials, the witch trials, were unlawful, and in 1711, the colony passed a bill restoring the rights and good names of those accused and granted 600 pounds restitution to their heirs. Or how about this one? 1964. In 1964, a white hotel manager named James Brock poured acid into a whites-only pool at the Monson Motor Lodge after black activists jumped in the water during a swimming protest. Hmm. Or how about this, the next time you take a visit to France and you're confronted with the reality of their immigration crisis and the way their immigrants are treated, as this brother is right here. Remember, France has enslaved, exploited, and pillaged Mali for decades. Though colonialism was supposed to have ended in the early 60s, the only thing that changed was the name. Now, it's called imperialism. And that's what this brother right here is trying to do. Trying to remind people on the train who look down and sneer and curse him. Reminding the public not to forget the other side of France's legacy worldwide. La France qui se lève tôt, elle est noire. Elle se couche tard, elle est noire. Là aujourd'hui, merci. Là aujourd'hui, le Mali, le président du Mali, il s'appelle Emmanuel Macron. On a divisé un pays, le Mali. I'm often asked, what is a black non-believer? What is this group all about? What does your t-shirt say? People walk up to me all the time and I still get it. They say condescendingly, why do you have a group when you don't believe anything? Or the more curious will say, so what do y'all believe? Or here's the other one, why y'all gotta be black? So here it is. Apart from normalizing religious dissent, like Frederick Douglass and so many of these other people that we've covered in previous episodes, offering support and community to those who are ostracized and mistreated and exploited by religious leaders and families or institutions. 
or promoting healthy skepticism and scientific inquiry in black communities and fighting for social justice and causes that that intersect with this neo-christian fascist toxic environment that we're living in i'm a non-believer because i can't forget the past and to do so would be to inflict a kind of violence against the memory of so many who have come before me and my own memory of all the things that have shaped and that have impacted me. On a macro level, erasing or ignoring history is one of the main tools of colonialization. This helps the colonizers to idealize their own history and support the idea that their values are better and greater than those whom they colonized. On a micro level, Erasing or ignoring history is one of the main tales of a manipulator. When someone passively or actively coerces you to ignore what has been done or not done to you in the past, you are now under their control and are thereby unable to advocate for yourself or the ones closest to you. So if you ask me why I'm a non-believer, among so many other reasons, what I'll tell you is that I never shall forget. Well, guys, that was a very personal episode. It's a little bit of a journal of some of my own thoughts and writings, I guess. And I hope I didn't bore you all. Next week, though, we will continue the road of religious descent and looking into our stories to remember the Black Georgians. So next week, stay tuned because we're going to have a very, very special guest. And he's going to take us through the history of Black achievement and descent in the Georgian period of the British Empire. So stick around. We'll see you next time. We poured the first human beings who came into existence on this planet, the first human beings who raised the first structures, who cooked the first meals, who taught the first children, who had the first children, the first Africans, the first people who stood upright, who walked, who figured out how to stay on this planet, who figured out how to pass that knowledge on to their children and their children's children, the mothers and fathers of civilization. Ashe. Ashe. We pour the next libation to their grandchildren, their children's children, those who raised the great early civilizations of Kemet and Kush and Monomotapa, the great medieval civilizations of Ghana and Mali and Songhai and Kanem-Bornu. We pour to those who great the great civilizations of the Igbo people and the Hausa people and the Kikongo people and the Mambara people, the great Monday civilizations, the great Kikongo, the great civilizations of Southern Africa, the Bantu people, the great civilizations of Southeast Africa, the Dinka, the Shilat, the Nur. We pour to those millions who raised the foundations from which the world would learn what it meant to be 
human in the world, I say. We pour to their children who upon the arrival on the shores of people they had never seen before, found themselves captured and marched overland, found themselves perishing by the millions before they were held on the holding cells and the open air pens on the coast of West, Central, Southern and East Africa. We pour to the ancestors who did not know as they were stripped of all clothing and sent denuded into boats, packed like animals and strewn their bones across the floor of the Atlantic and the Indian Ocean. We pour to them who in the last moment on Africa grabbed the sand and grabbed the dirt and put it in their mouths and understood that the only thing they might have to preserve their place in that continent was their memory of that place and their ability to pass it on to their children. We pour to them. Ashe. Ashe. We pour to those Africans and their children who finding themselves cast adrift in Santiago, Cuba, who found themselves cast adrift in Puerto Spain, Trinidad and Puerto Prince Haiti, who found themselves cast adrift in New Orleans and Charleston and Mobile, who found themselves cast adrift in Salvador Bahia, who found themselves cast adrift in Barbados and the archipelago that formed the wayward and the, and the windward coast. We found them in these places, learning Portuguese and Spanish and French, whose often first words was, oh my God, oh Madre de Dios, who found themselves praying to survive and pass on to their children the memories. We pour to those ancestors who are represented in the thousands, buried in all the square miles of where we stand, and who sit here, buried before us in 400 caskets, forged of wood from West Africa, with adinkra symbols. Each one of them, each woman, man, and child, symbolic of millions. The children of those who could not be killed, we pour our shame. We pour to their children who somehow survived the hells of enslavement and fought for emancipation in the Caribbean, the French, British, Dutch Caribbean, who fought for emancipation in South America, who fought for emancipation in Central America, who fought the struggles we refer to as the Civil War in the United States, who came out of that, marched out of enslavement through Reconstruction and found themselves making great migrations, eventually ending up in places like New York. Their children's children, who making away for themselves, became our great-great-grandparents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, our parents. Those who, when the first bones were discovered in this space, held their hands and said, stop, no more. We are here to speak for those who can no longer speak with their mouths. We pour for those ancestors, some of whom came to Howard University in 2004 and followed these caskets all the way back to New York we pray to the great ancestors, the ones whose names we know and the ones whose names we don't. And at this moment, as we pour this libation, I would ask anyone who feels comfortable to say the name of someone in your bloodline who is no longer physically here, but who you know made it possible for you to be here. Go ahead, let's hear the names. Hey, we Carr. Porter Griffin. Thomas Lee Jr. Evelyn Glover. We pour to the names that we hold collectively. Ganga Zumba in Brazil. Toussaint Louverture, Jean-Jacques Dessalini, and Henri Christophe in Haiti. We pour to the great Avengers, Nandi of the Maroons of Jamaica. We pour to the great ancestors, Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, Frederick Douglass. Say the names that you study. Who are the names of the ancestors that you have come to hold in your heart and your mind as you hope that you can do what they did for us, for your children and children's children? Let's say some of those famous names. Malcolm X, John Henry Clark, John Jackson, Jacob Carruthers. And finally, 
two final libations. We pour to those who make it possible for us to do what we do. We pour to these rangers who stand guardian over this sacred space. We pour to these Africans and these folks who have come from Howard University, the staff, the faculty, the administrators who brought us here today to bear witness. This is not a libation, but an affirmation because their hearts still beat, their tongues still speak, their minds still think, and their minds still wish the best for us. We pour for all of those people who surrounded us on this journey today and made it possible for us to be here. We pour this affirmation of thanks, Ashe. Ashe. And finally, we pour to your children's children's children who will one day stand on this fate and speak your name.